listening to BC Museum Portraits, and I'm Project Manager Spencer Stewart. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Executive Director of the Umista Cultural Center, Juanita Johnston. Juanita, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and talk about the, uh, the UMISTA Cultural Center and, and all the work that's being done here. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved with museums and with the Cultural Center? It's a bit of a roundabout story. In 1989, I had a girlfriend that was working here. She was a cultural teacher for the Glissilagalai School, the Bandarun School, and I was picking her up for lunch. And I walked in and the gift shop manager at the time, Devana Hunt, said, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just here to pick up Ange for lunch, you know? (laughs) And she goes, no, with your life. I was like, oh. (laughs) And I think I was like 21 or something. Not very old, maybe 19 or 20. And she basically coerced me into applying for a position that they listed as collect, no, not collection, had nothing to do with collections. It was membership clerk slash janitor slash any other duties that may apply (laughs) slash gift shop clerk slash one of those positions yeah Yeah. so i started in november of 1989 and they told i don't remember what they were called back then it was a training society now they're they're north vancouver island aboriginal training society Mm -hmm. they told the program officer at the time that i was completely untrained and they needed money to train me up so (laughs) that's how they funded that position and I worked with them for just about a year and then Gloria Webster our first curator retired and I was here for about four years and then I started going back to school and working here in the summer for Mm -hmm. four months and I did that till 93 and Randall McNair talked me into applying for a conservation internship at MOA. So I went and did that for a year, and when I came back, I stepped into collections as collections manager. Wow, so it's been... So I did that from 94 to, 90, to 2003, and then I moved away. And then I came home in 2010, and from, slid back into a couple-day-a-week contract. The director at the time, Andrea Sanborn, was really sick, and she ended up passing away, and... The new ED, Sarah, hired me after my contract ran out in the end of the fiscal on another contract. And then about a year after that, I became full-time staff. So I've been here back home since 2010. Walk us through the, the history of, of the Cultural Center. What were the early days? What were the sort of the mission statements then? And how was the collection developed over that period of time? The earliest days were basically because of Section 149 of the Indian Act prohibited any festivals or gatherings or potlatches. 1921, Dan Cranmer had a large potlatch at Village Island, and from that, 45 people were arrested and charged with offenses such as handing out gifts, making speeches, dancing, singing, basically practicing the culture. So the potlatch was in December. It was really close to Christmas, or it might have even spanned over Christmas. So it's been known as the Christmas potlatch. And then the trials were in February, March, and April of 1922. So we're coming up to the 100th year anniversary of the potlatch trials. The law had changed, and it was changed from a summary offense to an indictable, or vice versa, I can't remember. I 
the legal just does my head in. So what that meant was that the Indian agent was allowed to act as judge and jury at the time. So when these people were charged with those offenses, he basically was the Indian agent and also the judge. So they came up with this agreement and they don't really know who, whether it was the Indian agent and the arresting officer or a selection of different people that if whole villages would surrender their regalia as a show of good faith to not potlatch anymore, those people arrested from their village wouldn't go to jail. So three villages complied. The Numbi's First Nation, whose territory, traditional territory we're on today, the Mamalilakala from Village Island, and the Waikaye from Cape Munch. And so their family members didn't go to jail. So it's interesting that the informant who was from Fort Rupert, because the Fort Rupert people refused, ended up going to jail mm. for potlatching. <laughs> mm. So our old people never forgot about this collection. And as soon as the potlatching law was deleted, it was never repealed. They simply rewrote the Indian Act in 1951 and deleted Section 149. Mm. And so the efforts began very quickly after that to return the collection. Because... A lot of the people had passed away, and museums don't like to um, give things back. <laughs> it's definitely changing. They outright refused to return it to the families who owned it. Eventually, through negotiations that carried on for quite a few years, the Nguyen Valley's Cultural Society and the Umista Cultural Society were formed, and families could choose where they wanted their regalia displayed, either here or in Cape Mudge. Mm-hmm. And that came about because there was a dispute about where the museum should be built and in the end they built two Mm. and so families could decide where they would like the regalia displayed. Mm. Umista sees ourselves as caretakers of this collection. It was legally transferred to Umista and Nuyambalis in 1986 through an order in council. Nuyambalis is our sister museum. They opened in 1979 and we opened November 1st 1980. And so the society was formed because we wanted to tell our own story. And so they made a film called Potlatch District Law Bids Us Dance. Mm. And that film is an hour-long documentary on the prohibition of the potlatch. And with that process of repatriating the regalia, Mm -hmm. that material, when it was was confiscated, Mm -hmm. did, did it find itself in a single collection or was it a process of having to locate no it actually had the federal government had their way they would have all gone to museums in canada while the regalia was collected up and on display at the parish hall which was behind the anglican church it's since been torn down um people were invited to come in and look at it and there's actually photographs of it in situ Mm. and those ended up being very valuable during repatriation Um, talks because the lists that were compiled were really terrible. They just said one mask, $8. Or one frontlet or headpiece or whatever, $8. So the lists were not very helpful, although they did write names on the actual physical pieces. Those photographs ended up being quite valuable in our research. The collection, while it was on display at the parish hall, there was a private collector who was in Campbell River on a buying trip and he heard about the trials and the regalia being surrendered and he hightailed it up here his name was george gustav high and so he was quite the prolific collector and because he was a collector 
he basically cherry picked. He bought all of the what we call yahuiwe or peace dance headdresses. He bought all of the articulated masks, the transformation masks. The total number of pieces was thirty-three. Mm. Halliday was censured by his superiors for selling that collection because it, they felt like it should have gone to Canadian museums. Mm. And so the bulk of the collection went to the National Museum of Man. A smaller portion was set aside for the Royal Ontario Museum. And an even smaller portion was set aside for the personal and private collection of Sir Duncan Campbell Scott, Mm. who at that time was the superintendent of Indian Affairs. Mm. So when he retired or passed away, his collection did end up going back into the collection of the Canadian Museum of History. Mm. So on the one hand, he's trying his best to stamp out the Paul Atch, but on the other hand, he's perfectly happy to take pieces from the collection into his private collection. The pieces that were sold to High ended up in New York. That's where he lived. His collection became the basis for the Museum of the American Indian. And then we approached them in 1993 and well we approached them earlier we approached everyone once they found out where the pieces were and weren't getting anywhere very quickly so they decided very early on to work on one institution at a time so the canadian museum of history they gave their stuff back and then it was the condition that we build a facility in which to house the collection and that's how the cultural centers came to be in 1986 the royal ontario museum stuff was returned and that was only returned because somebody was very clever and figured out that the ROM didn't hold title to it. The CMH still held title. And okay. so they pulled the loan and returned it to us. They were not willing to return it, and so that's how it had to come home. Are, are there materials still that, to this day that you're, you're yes. actively uh, yeah. working to repatriate? Some pieces were lost in, in storage kind of thing, how big museums have massive amounts of collections. We found a face mask in their collection. It was numbered wrong at one point. It was a V11X number instead of a V11E. So that one has surfaced and they found a a puppet belonging to Amos Dawson that had been lost in the collection and so wasn't returned. Mm -hmm. And so we've been in talks with the CMH about those pieces. There's also a piece that turned up in the Horniman Museum in London. Mm-hmm. The British Museum has one of the pieces. That one, of course, is back here on long-term loan. It's in our third gallery right now. Mm-hmm. And it's just because the case doesn't fit in the potlatch collection mm-hmm. where it should be. Um, and that's a renewable three-year term, that loan. You have to reapply eight months in advance. Okay. So, right. Yeah. And every once in a while, they like to exercise their ownership. We had to transfer it back in 2017. So it could go on an exhibit. It had never been on exhibit before. So we transferred it back and then they lent it back to us again hmm. on another three year term. We're not allowed to go into the case without letting them know or requesting permission, that kind of thing. What are some events, people, moments that are happening in present that you're interested in facilitating in the cultural center? Our sort of events that we do run the gamut. Hmm. Um, We did the first Truth and Reconciliation Day this September, and I wasn't able to partake in everything because it's a day that our grants are due. 
a few grants were due that day. So that's fun. <laughs> I don't know who planned that. But we did, one of our staff organized the temporary monument on the grounds of St. Mike's because once the school came, there was nothing there for years. It's a bit of a parking lot for us and then the rest of the, the space is just empty. And so the survivors were feeling a little bit pushed aside and forgotten. And then when the first 215 graves surfaced, Jonathan took it upon himself to meet with the survivors and ask if they were okay with the temporary monument and how did they feel about it and stuff. And they were, they were for it. The event turned out great. I thought it would be really heavy, but it ended up being quite a nice day. It felt a lot of like healing and good feelings happening that day. I never made it up to the big house. They had a luncheon and stuff up there and the kids shared culture. So that was unfortunate. I just had to get the grants in. But that was the first time people had been in the big house in two years. So COVID has taken its toll. We've branched out and are running programs that are more with healing and mental health and stuff as well. Yeah. Just shifting and pivoting as we see the need. Mm-hmm. With your exhibitions, how, how do you go about planning them? How, how, did, how do you start to work with ideas and mm-hmm. expand? We've got a younger collections team and I just let them take the lead for the 40th anniversary exhibit. I did an interview with one of the, with Gloria Webb's, some of the other staff interviewed their family so we could record those sort of early days and the opening day and what they remembered and stuff. And then the team just went for it. Now we're starting to plan for the next exhibit to go in there. Sometimes we will just rent an exhibit too if it's relevant to us or we partner with like we partnered with UBC Museum of Anthropology when they did the um, Kesu exhibit on Doug Kramer Mm. and they scaled it down so it could travel here. It went to museum at Camel River and then it came here. Mm. So we were really fortunate to get that and we are happy to partner with MOA or different institutions and hosting exhibits is great because then it's things that we wouldn't generate ourselves and it's a chance for staff to see something new and, and the locals to see something new. What are some items that have come into the collection recently that you're really excited about? It's a collection of t-shirts and sweatshirts and stuff from Jay Stewart and Peter McNair and they're like potlatch t-shirts that like families used to get t-shirts made and just hand out t-shirts to everyone. That's not something that's still done anymore. Hmm. So the, kind of the gifts have changed and we thought it would be cool to do an exhibition on either potlatch gifts and how they've changed over time. And so those t-shirts fit in with that great. Over your time with the Cultural Center, what were some uh, items that came back into the collection that you felt really brought back the context and the story mm. of, of the potlatch? I think the return of the stuff from the National Museum of the American Indian, because those were the pieces that High basically cherry-picked. To see those come back, there's this set of rattles, they're hand rattles, so they're worn over top of your hands, and each finger is a different like bird, yeah. and then you shake them and they rattle. One day, I'm thinking maybe for Umisa's 50th, we'll do an exhibit on particular artist who carved those. We don't know a lot of the artists because anything made for ceremony was not signed. So you can only tell by the style. So people like Bob Harris, he's the artist for those and he's done a number of things. That stuff that came back from the NMAI was pretty pretty powerful. Just the workmanship and the amazing artwork in them and just the artists were pretty excited. But I think one of probably the most exciting pieces, and I wasn't there when it came back, but Gloria Webster told me, 
that the Raven and Ermine headdress that's in our collection. Originally, the Canadian Museum of History offered photographs of everything, and thanks, but no thanks. Photos aren't the same. And to illustrate that point, when Ahu, Agnes Alford, the lady in that portrait there, that's the photo, she's holding that mask. She instantly remembered the legend that went with that headpiece as soon as she held it in her hands. Photos are great, but they do not give you that. No, that like haptic she, connection. You have to have that connection. Yeah. So, and and that, that's pretty powerful that she remembered that. And then they also took the old people up to Night Inlet on a same boat. And they couldn't, of course, go into all the different places that they used to when they were younger. Mm. But just to even go up there, again, it was Ahu. She remembered a Grease song mm. from being back up in Night Inlet. And so that song was revived by the singers because they were filming everything. It was recorded, and then once they somebody remembered, and then they played it back, and they got that song off of there. Wow. And so it's back in the potlatch circulation, and the family's using it again. I was wondering, you were talking about the ability to identify various makers, various mm-hmm. carvers, things of this nature, when these items are coming back. Mm-hmm. How does that process play out? D- does the material come in, or is it from seeing the photos? Can artists somewhat identify, mm-hmm. oh, that's, yeah, the that's like that, a style of yeah. before? Yeah, pretty yeah. much, yeah. Um, like Bruce Alford, he's a very talented uh, box maker mm-hmm. and artist. He's done pretty much the whole gamut of things. He trained under Doug Cranmer and worked with Bo Dick and stuff, and, but they can tell by looking at it, like, stylistically. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> that's not my thing. <laughs> but I respect their opinions, right? What are your aspirations and hopes for, for the Cultural Centre moving forward? One of the things I've always wanted was for all Kwakwaktuak to know that this place is, belongs to them, because there's still people that live away and don't understand that, no, you're Kwakwaktuak, this is your place. And I also want to expand, because we are literally bodies on top of bodies. When I took over, there was four staff, and then we lost two staff because the positions changed. So as of last June, there was just myself and Joseph, the business manager. And so we were still closed up until the 8th of June, and basically we closed from St. Patrick's Day till June 8th. And for those 11 weeks, we just wrote grants and letters to foundations and just looked for money anywhere and everywhere. And then when we opened back up, we, we started hiring for the grants that we got. And we've been growing steadily ever since. So now we have, I think it's 11 staff. We're going to hire another one. So thankfully, three people don't work on site. But the rest do, and there's nowhere to put people. We've already expanded our capacity here. There's a need for office space in this community. Um, we're not the only ones. Mm-hmm. So we would like to expand out that way and go up two floors, mm-hmm. put offices on the top floor, potentially more program space, um, and a couple offices to rent out to community, and another space for youth in the community. There's no youth center. There's nowhere for youth to go. We took that on as part of the Awilgola project that we're running with eight local partner organizations. Mm. And those are thankfully two of the staff that are working off-site. We leased the community hall, it's a big hall, but the roof is leaking, so that means we're gonna have to pivot our programs. But those type of programs that we're running, 
was designed to fill in the gaps of what's not being offered. The youth and the community were in crisis, and so we started rolling out all of these programs, virtual at first and now in person. So it's going pretty well, I think. You were mentioning the, the exhibition earlier of gifts, the kind of thought of yeah, the history yeah. through gifts. During your time as a curator and now in the position with being an executive director, mm-hmm. what are some other exhibitions that you would like to see, I'd stories like, that you'd like to I'd uh, like to explore? do an exhibit on um, Bob Paris's artwork. Mm. We've been tossing that one around for a few years. Exhibits are so expensive to travel, but his work is so phenomenal that I think we could get some bigger partners on board. And of course, it's the travel dollars that are so hard to find, and it's so expensive to travel anything. That might be the 50th anniversary. Yeah. And when is that coming up? When is the 50th? For we just had the 40th. Right. Um, November 1st, 1980. So 2032. Yeah. Wow. And to come in for yeah. lunch, you came in to pick up a friend for lunch. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the way it so, works, though, isn't it? Yeah, while I was gone, there was no accessioning or cataloging that happened. Really? From 2003 till 2010. And we're still trying to catch up from that era. <laughs> you were talking about this experience of working with institutions. Mm-hmm. Has that process changed do you feel in terms I of repatriation? I feel like it, things are changing slowly, um, especially with the respect to human remains. Some institutions like the British Museum, I don't know if they'll ever change. They have the British Museum Act that they stand behind, which says it precludes them from ever you know, repatriating any parts of their collection. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that's handy, but it's a law and an act that you made, and you can change it if you want to. It's not like this <laughs> carved in stone. Yeah. But they're, I think they're a bit worried about opening up the floodgates. Yeah. But that's the thing is, it's not floodgates. You can't repatriate everything, and we've never said that we want everything back. Our focus has been the potlatch collection. Yeah. But very early on, Gloria Webster went through the paperwork to to qualify us as a category A institution Mm -hmm. so that we could access movable cultural property dollars so that we could hand out tax receipts to donors who gave us exceptional pieces. We've maintained that and I'm really glad she did that work in the beginning because it was easy enough for me just to maintain the application. So we still have that standing which has allowed us to repatriate pieces that were outside of the country. For instance, the Chilkut blanket in the third gallery, Mary Evans' Chilkut blanket. That one was up for auction a couple years ago in Paris. And because it was a African art, it didn't get a lot of traffic, but there was two other people interested in it. So it never sold at auction. And we approached them and asked if we could buy it. And once they found out who we were, the donors or the vendors held off and waited for us to get our money from the federal government. Mm. And they could have sold it to somebody else, but they didn't. So it's nice when that happens. We've got people that are like the poster children for repatriation or things like that. And then there's some that pretend you don't exist. (laughs) We've got a family in Paris that has one of our transformation masks but we've written them twice and they're just not acknowledging us. So I think that will take probably the longest, but... 
And that um, becomes then like a generational thing, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, perhaps it'll be somebody else will pick up the torch when I'm yeah. retired. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there, there are there are ongoing. Yeah, there's ongoing. still pieces out there. I do have like a missing in action sort of folders. An ex-colleague of mine said that they're ready to come home is when we find them. Yeah. Juanita, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and, and speak with me about about the Centre and mm-hmm. all the best into the future. Really Thanks. looking forward to the next projects. Yeah, good luck with your project. This has been another BC Museum Portrait. BC Museum Portraits is done in partnership with the BC Museum Association. To hear more portraits, and view the accompanying images made by project photographer Tayu Hayward, please go to museum.bc.ca. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.